Hello and welcome to episode 22 of Paper Review, where I review the papers and big headlines over the week and place events and headlines in the true context in a weekly podcast. And I'm going to start this week with a story here about censorship of alternative information. This is happening in various ways, some of which I'll get into. This is in The Independent. EU committee approves new rules that could destroy the internet as we know it. An EU committee has approved two new copyright rules that campaigners warn could destroy the internet as we know it. The two controversial new rules, known as Article 11 and Article 13, introduce wide-ranging new changes to the way the web works. Article 13 has been criticised by campaigners who claim that it could force internet companies to ban memes. Memes are images, often with a copyrighted image involved, and words are used over the copyrighted images, text, just to make a point, or just to be funny. But alternative sources of information often involves memes. Is there a great way to get a point across in a very short, snappy way? The article goes on. It requires that all websites check posts against a database of copyrighted work and remove those that are flagged. That could mean memes, which often use images taken from films or TV shows, could be removed by websites. The system was also likely to go wrong, campaigners say, pointing to previous examples where automated systems at YouTube have taken down a variety of entirely innocent posts. Smaller sites might not even be able to maintain such a complicated infrastructure for scanning through posts and therefore might not be able to continue to function, activists claim. That's the idea. One of the ways to overcome the censorship of the Silicon Valley internet giants like Facebook and YouTube and Google, which owns YouTube, is to create your own website. But now this EU committee approved rule could target websites if the EU Parliament agrees to go ahead with it because that's the only way that it can be stopped because they want to destroy any method of communicating alternative information and only have their narrative communicated. The article goes on. Some companies and sites have already had to shut down as a result of the EU's new GDPR data rules. GDPR means General Data Protection Regulation. The GDPR is a regulation in EU law on data protection and privacy for all individuals within the European Union and European Economic Area. The article goes on. It has been opposed by a whole host of internet experts, many of them involved with the creation of the central technologies and services of the internet. An open letter published last week was signed by more than 70 experts, including Tim Berners-Lee, who's credited with creating the internet, shall we say, Wikipedia co-founder Jimmy Wales and internet pioneer Vint Cerf. By requiring internet platforms to perform automatic filtering of all the content that their users upload, Article 13 takes an unprecedented step towards the transformation of the internet from an open platform for sharing and innovation into a tool for the automated surveillance and control of its users, the letter read. The authors note that copyright is an important part of law which exists to encourage creators to ensure their work is put out into the world, but the automatic systems being considered by the EU are not the right ways of controlling that, they argue. But that's not why they're being proposed. They are about censoring alternative information. We support the consideration of measures that would improve the ability for creators to receive fair remuneration for the use of their works online, the letter reads. And it goes on to say, but we cannot support Article 13, which would mandate internet platforms to embed an automated infrastructure for monitoring and censorship deep into their networks. The article goes on. Copyright law does not include exceptions for specific use of some material such as parodies, but those protections are different in each EU country. 
and automated blocking systems are unlikely to be able to spot them anyway, leading to suggestions that many memes will be taken down simply because it is safest to err on the side of blocking, according to German MEP Julia Rader. And Julia Rader has actually set up a website to expose this proposal. Article 11 introduces a link tax requiring the internet companies get permission from publishers to use a snippet of their work. On websites like Google and Twitter, for instance, a small part of the article is usually shown before someone clicks into it entirely. But under the new rule, those technology companies would have to get permission and perhaps even pay to use that excerpt. How about Google and Twitter just change the way their website works so that there is no snippet of the article? A letter signed by 169 academics argued that the new rule would likely impede the free flow of information that is of vital importance to democracy. Though the new rules have been approved by the EU's Jury Commission, the Jury Commission is the European Parliament Committee on Legal Affairs, they will not go into effect until they are passed by the European Parliament. Campaigners urged MEPs to reject the regulations. Article 13 must go. The EU Parliament will have another chance to remove this dreadful law, said Jim Killock, Executive Director of the Open Rights Group. He goes on to say the EU Parliament's duty is to defend citizens from unfair and unjust laws. MEPs must reject this law which would create a robo-copyright regime intended to zap any image, text, meme or video that appears to include copyright material even when it is entirely legal material. Well, this is not about copyright at all, it's about censoring the free flow of alternative information. This is a massively important subject. Alternative information is being targeted in various ways and this is just the latest attempt to stop the free flow of alternative information because they know more and more people are starting to see the world differently because of alternative information, whether it's articles, videos, books, radio shows, podcasts, whatever. And they want to stem the free flow of alternative information. One of the ways this is being done is by demonetization. Some alternative media sites and outlets need advertising to survive, and this is why YouTube is demonetizing videos. People upload their work to YouTube, and if they qualify for monetization, then with the advertising also on the video, they get money from that to allow them to continue to produce their work and to have some kind of living from that. But YouTube is targeting alternative media channels and either outright deleting them or pulling advertising from those channels or targeting certain videos of the channel and they'll give a ridiculous excuse for why they're doing it oh this video doesn't comply with our regulations they never say why they never say what it is about the video and a lot of it is algorithms it's computer codes doing it it's not even real people it's just a computer algorithm actually doing it so there's no substance there's no explanation as to why it's happened also Google search algorithms are changing the way search results appear. So unless you really know what you're looking for, you might not find certain information. This is the censorship of Silicon Valley, and along with its data gathering, especially Facebook, but all the others as well, and profiling, tracking. You've got the world's greatest system of surveillance and censorship the world has ever seen. All in one concentrated area, in Silicon Valley, California. But because of those internet giants' reach, the last figure I saw for Facebook's reach was an estimated two and a half billion people in a world now of seven and a half billion, possibly more, on Facebook. Google has an even bigger reach because a lot of people who are not on Facebook use Google. And you've got Twitter as well. And some people who, who don't use Facebook are on Twitter instead. So you've got the greatest system of censorship and tracking, surveillance, 
the world has ever seen, just in Silicon Valley alone. Anyone wonder how these internet giants became as big as they are? Does anyone think it's by chance that Facebook and Google and YouTube and Twitter are internet giants in the first place? And why other social media platforms are not within a galaxy of popularity by comparison? If you ask people to name five social media platforms apart from Google, YouTube, Facebook, Twitter, I would be surprised if they could even come up with two. So what you do, you make these companies huge, you get people addicted to them, and then what you do, now you've got this monopoly, you censor information you don't want people to know about. So all people see is what you do want them to know about. They know that in the face of all this, however, people communicating information different to the mainstream narrative is having an impact and people are seeing the truth of world events and changes in society despite all that and so they have to make it as difficult as possible for alternative media content creators to continue their work and for people to see the work there's also zionist groups revisionist zionist groups so-called anti-hate groups who go around defaming people including one called the anti-defamation league ironically and others like the campaign against anti-semitism and friends of Israel who lie to venue owners and staff about certain people booked to speak in those venues about what the person is going to say and what they've said in the past telling the venue the person is anti-semitic or racist and that there could be a danger to the public and that there could be protests if the person is allowed to speak when they know it's all lies and if the venue doesn't cancel and this has happened in one case that I know of they contact police and local authorities to pressure the venues to cancel the talk, cancel the event. This has happened in at least one case I know of, and emails exist to show this in this particular case. We've also had in recent years David Cameron and Theresa May talking about non-violent extremism. And the real target of the attempts to stop non-violent extremism is not those who are grooming people online, which could lead to them becoming terrorists. It's not those who incite violence or hatred. It's not those people who they're going after. It's those who are challenging official mainstream narratives and questioning and exposing the truth about politically correct subjects that you're not allowed to talk about, like transgender and revisionist Zionism. I've said before that political correctness is not ultimately about protecting minorities, although it might seem to be on the surface as it seems to play out that way. Ultimately, it's an elite agenda to stop exposure of elite agendas. It's also the end of freedom of speech if we allow it to be. I covered in episode 16 a story about proposals to jail people for communicating hate crime. And who decides what the hate crime is? They do. Anybody communicating the truth about transgender or Zionism? Six months in jail, one year in jail, three years in jail, potentially. You post... An article online about the truth of Zionism. You could go to jail for three years. Under these proposals, in episodes 13 and 15, I talk about why I say that political correctness is actually the ultimate discrimination. And, you know, they talk about non-violent extremism when violence gives authority and government the excuse to change society to allegedly make everyone safer when it's really about advancing the agenda for total surveillance and total control. 
It's rich, really, when political leaders of America and Britain talk about extremism, when the West sells arms to tyrannical and vicious regimes like Saudi Arabia. I've talked about this before in episode 7. This is what I call moral outrage for hire, and I explain what I mean by that in episode 7. Cameron, Obama, May and Trump would talk about how immoral extremism is, while the West is selling arms to tyrannies like Saudi Arabia and Theresa May is taking photos with a member of the Saudi royal family, and Benjamin Netanyahu of Israel, and refusing to condemn or ask legitimate questions of Israel. And I've explained why this happens with Israel and the West in episode 10. Theresa May will talk about how events like Manchester or London, the terrorist events there, are terrible, and they are, and they're against British values, while selling arms to Saudi Arabia and supporting Israel. It's moral outrage for hire. Condemn when it suits, support when it suits. British values are condemning terrorism while supporting it when it suits the agenda and using endless excuses to take over and conflict with increasing numbers of countries on our checklist leading eventually to a massive global conflict. Which is why Russia is being demonised now at every turn and why there is American bases around China. John Pilger, a real journalist, there are still some, I know they're a dying breed, but there are still some journalists out there, exposes this brilliantly in a documentary called The Coming War with China, which was broadcast originally on Channel 4. I'll include a link to the documentary when I upload this episode. Russia and China have been in the planning for a long time in terms of conflict. In terms of the focus on non-violent extremism, it's not about stopping terrorism. They want terrorism because, like general violence, it gives them the excuse to re-image society in line with the elite's agenda. So what is this really all about? Well, it's about stemming the flow of alternative information. However, it's worth making this point. There is what has become known as the alternative media. However, it's not just one entity, it's fragmented. It doesn't have to be, but it is, unfortunately. Certain parts of the alternative media are nothing more than clipping, which is a term meaning sites and articles are created to generate as much money as possible for them through advertising revenue. When you click on a link to their website, they get money each time. That's how clickbait works. Now, there's nothing wrong with that, but the point is, when you click on the link to the page, it comes up and it's sensationalist headlines. And when you actually read the article, there's nothing to support it at all. And there's no sources. It's just a made up story just to generate money for the people who own the site. It's full of unsupported, unsubstantiated, baseless claims with nothing to back them up. But it doesn't matter because by the time you've opened the page, you've already generated the advertising revenue for them. Your Newswire is a classic example, also called News Punch. But there are many others. Also, also in many cases, people who take alternative media content and post about it or comment on it, their comments or their posts are sloppy in terms of writing with poor punctuation, poor grammar, poor spelling, poor structuring of sentences, and in many cases, and as unresearched and uninformed as most of the journalists in the mainstream media are. But even when it's communicating the truth, it's still poor presentation, poor quality of writing, etc. And 
presentation is everything because if you're trying to reach as many people as possible then you've got to make sure your presentation your approach is as professional as the mainstream media as the mass media and of course not everybody can achieve a professional presentation but as professional as possible is what it should be and certainly a professional approach because the mainstream media is where most people get their information from so you've got to match that also facts are everything i know we live in a post-fact society now where emotion and belief is far more important to people than facts but without facts there is no point in the alternative media there's no point in it because the whole point of the alternative media is to show that there's a different side to the mainstream narrative with credible fact-checked information. Without the credible fact-checked part of it, there's no point in it. The best of the alternative media make sure their facts are right before they go public with them. They do the research that the mainstream media doesn't do. They ask the questions that the mainstream media doesn't ask and they give a platform to the names the mainstream media won't touch. That's what the best of the alternative media does. Indeed, much of the alternative media is what I've seen turned mainstream light media. It's not alternative at all, it's just slightly more alternative than the mainstream, but it's basically a mainstream light version, because it's closer to the mainstream in terms of its point of perception than truly alternative. You had, at least up until Trump, attacked Syria in April this year. One particular alternative media outlet who supported Donald Trump in just the same way as Fox and CNN support political candidates and political parties. It was exactly the same way. And they still call themselves alternative. It was quite ridiculous, really. They realised eventually what some people in the alternative media could see from the start, that supporting Donald Trump could only end one way and it wasn't going to be good, and they were going to end up with egg on their faces, which they did. How that happened after decades of them saying, change is not going to come from politics, there's an elite that run everything, and voting is irrelevant, there's no need to vote, because the same agenda will go on anyway. They said that for decades, and all of a sudden, along comes Donald Trump and everything changes. Now all of a sudden change can happen through government and actually Donald Trump is the saviour and vote and basically went back on everything they'd said believing that Donald Trump was going to be the one to change America and save the world. Of course it was never going to work out. Quite how it happened in the first place is beyond me but it did. So that's the other side of the alternative media but the genuine alternative media asks the question how in a country that claims to be a democracy can, in a country of over 320 million people, the last figure I saw, Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton be the choice that people are given to vote for? How can a democracy offer people those two as a choice in a country of over 320 million people? That's the question the genuine alternative media would ask. And the establishment and authority have no problem with alternative media outlets on the other side of the alternative media, which I was just talking about, so-called alternative media, because they don't cause a problem for them. It's about the genuine alternative media that are spreading true information that the elite and the state want people to believe is fake news. This is where this whole fake news thing came from. That's another way they're trying to 
stop the flow of alternative information is by calling it fake news and trying to get it censored on that basis. Now, some of it will be fake news, but there's a lot of information that they will want people to believe is fake news that is actually true. And this proposal now is not the last attempt. They'll try other things as well. This is just the latest attempt, but there'll be another one along soon to censor alternative information. And my question is, if they are so sure of what they say and their version of events, their version of the world, their version of society is true, then why do they need to have so much effort to censor alternatives to that? Why would it matter if what they're saying is true? Why would it matter what other people are saying? Because if it's true, then it will be shown to be so. It will stand up to people when others are challenging it. The reason they have a problem with it is because they know that in the light of scrutiny and questioning and challenge, credible challenge, then their narrative falls like a house of cards. That's why they have a problem with it. The real targets for them are those who are asking those questions and communicating those facts and those who are professional in terms of their approach, their presentation, their research and those that ensure in every way possible that their facts are right before going to public with them. Checking sources and checking the information. Those are the targets because they know the information communicated through those sources of alternative information. If people see it and look at it and check it for themselves as well, those people that look at it actually check it out for themselves as well, then they know that their narrative will fall apart. And just going back to the fake news situation, I have a simple remedy for the fake news situation. No censorship necessary. You don't need to censor, you don't need to regulate, you don't need to have laws. All you do is this, very simple. People stop being lazy and expecting others to tell them news and information and start taking responsibility for their own perceptions. If people did their own research into information, whether it's mainstream or alternative, they'd find out if it's true or not, and then there wouldn't be a problem. There's no problem with fake news. Even if it is fake news, it doesn't matter. Because if people take the responsibility to find out for themselves, then there's no problem. Why should it be up to corporations and the state to define what information people have access to? When you have the state deciding what's true and not true and censoring information, you have tyranny. There's a couple of articles here about radiation from technology. And the first article is about 5G. This is in the Daily Mail. The rollout of 5G wireless service is a massive health experiment, public health expert warns as cell companies install 800,000 towers across the US. Wireless carriers are constructing cell towers, a stronger, faster 5G network, but some experts warn that the updated service's health effects are unknown and potentially dangerous. Today, there are 154,000 cell towers in the US, according to Wireless Communication Association, CTIA. By 2026, it estimates another 800,000 will be needed to support 5G. The network update will bring more Americans into closer proximity with millimeter waves, very short wave radiation. Research on cell phone radiation has yielded mixed findings, but some studies have linked older wireless service generations to cancers of the heart and reproductive organs, and 5G's health effects have hardly been studied. Of course they have not been studied, because if they were independently and the findings were published, then 
5G would never be allowed to be used. The article goes on. The new network is slated to support 100 billion devices connecting to the internet at anywhere between 10 and 100 times the speeds the information travels through the 4G network. 5G is not just the next step on from 2G, 3G, 4G. 5G, as we've had, increases over periods of time. It's not just the next one, it's a massive step on. The article goes on. In order to facilitate these speeds, the new network communicates through millimeter waves, MMWs, rather than microwaves as previous generations have. The microwave networks are nearly saturated, hence the switch to the virtually untouched lower frequency millimeter waves for 5G. But smaller waves cannot travel as far or through as many types of materials. This means that there will need to be far more individual small cell towers closer together. Some have suggested they will be on every street corner in the US. The 5G technology is too new to have been thoroughly tested and studied by many parties outside of cell service providers. According to Dr. John Moskowitz, a public health professor at the University of California, Berkeley, MMWs could pose a very real danger. The deployment of 5G or fifth generation cellular technology constitutes a massive experiment on the health of all species, he told Daily Mail Online. That's a good point because it's not just people affected by radiation from technology, it's animals as well. The article goes on. Because MMWs are weaker than microwaves, they are predominantly absorbed by the skin, meaning their distribution is quite focused there. Since skin contains capillaries and nerve endings, MMW bioeffects may be transmitted through molecular mechanisms by the skin or through the nervous system, Dr. Moskowitz writes on his blog. He also told Daily Mail Online that he is concerned that 5G will use high band frequencies on millimeter waves that may affect the eyes, the testes, the skin, the peripheral nervous system and sweat glands. It's interesting that he mentions the testes because I said before that there's a depopulation agenda. He goes on to say millimeter waves can also make some pathogens resistant to antibiotics. Dr. Moskowitz is not alone in apprehensions. The International Society of Doctors for the Environment, its subsidiaries in 27 countries, and more than 200 doctors and scientists are all calling for a stop to be put to the rollout of 5G due to concern that 5G radio frequency radiation will have adverse health effects, Dr. Moskowitz says. So far, their warnings have gone unheeded. There's a surprise. Verizon began rolling out their 5G small cell towers in 11 cities in 2017, and AT&T started installing the new generation of service in Waco and Dallas, Texas, as well as in Atlanta, Georgia this year. The next article now, also in the Daily Mail. As more countries ban iPads and mobile phones from the classroom, could Wi-Fi be giving our children cancer? Yes, it can cause cancer. Plenty of children these days are so obsessed with having internet access that they will virtually refuse to go on holiday unless the hotel or villa has Wi-Fi. They're certainly used to being fully connected at school where millions of youngsters who were once taught with chalk on a blackboard now sit in circles on the floor surfing the web on their tablets or phones. The trouble is that those smartphones are used as educational tools in some lessons. They can also be a dangerous distraction during the day for pupils. In fact, youngsters taking phones into schools has become a such a contentious issue that now a minister has called for them to be banned. Yet there is another issue which is perhaps even more important. One of the world's top cancer experts has said that Wi-Fi beamed through Britain's classrooms, radio waves that send signals between base units and devices, such as iPads and mobile phones, could be as dangerous as tobacco and asbestos. See, some of us have been saying this for years, that emissions from wireless technology Radiation, in other words, is dangerous, and we're ignored, but when a professor says it, it's taken seriously in the media. Professor Anthony Miller of Toronto University couldn't be blunter, saying Wi-Fi should not be allowed in schools. 
Professor Miller, who is Director of Canada's National Cancer Institute's Epidemiology Unit and has held top posts in the World Health Organization and the German Cancer Research Center, is not alone in his fears. He is the latest in a long line of top scientists to warn that the invisible waves of electromagnetic radiation that now constantly wash over us all, dubbed electrosmog even by some academics, may cause a future cancer epidemic and that its children who are most at risk. This is nothing that hasn't been said outside of the mainstream for years. But because it's outside of the mainstream, therefore, it's not worth paying attention to. The article goes on. Some concerned nations have already begun banning or restricting Wi-Fi as well as mobile phones and other sources of electrosmog in schools, but not Britain. See, Wi-Fi is Wi-Fi. If it causes a problem in one country, it's going to cause a problem everywhere. Other countries have banned it. Why not Britain? Why not America? Why not other countries? The article goes on. 18 years after a landmark official inquiry headed by a former government chief scientist recommended a raft of measures to reduce this kind of radiation, virtually nothing has been done. Of course nothing's been done, because the agenda is that Wi-Fi is everywhere, so it's everywhere. The article goes on. In the meantime, we have effectively been conducting a massive medical experiment on ourselves and our children, who some campaigners are now referring to as Generation Zapped. For the fact is that human beings have never been exposed to anything like this before. The ubiquitous electro-smog from mobile phones, Wi-Fi, baby monitors, smart energy meters, smart meters, my goodness me, and a host of other internet-connected products is a billion times stronger than the natural electromagnetic fields in which living cells developed over the past 3,800 million years. The worrying thing is that we don't know how this experiment will end. That's the point there, you see. The American Cancer Association says on its website, and it will be the same in Britain and elsewhere, the American Cancer Association says on its website, smart meters have not been studied to see if they cause health problems. No, they haven't been studied, because if they were studied independently and the findings were published, then smart meters, just like 5G, would never be allowed to be used. So they don't test it, but they roll it out anyway. Because in the hidden, deep in the hidden, they do test it. They have tested it. They know what it does. And that's why they roll it out. See, this is the switching reception people need. The effects of smart readers and 5G, they don't come about because of poor manufacturing or because nobody knows what they're gonna do. They come about because that's why they were rolled out in the first place. The article goes on. We don't know how this experiment will end. That is partly because it will take years to play out. Massive exposure only began recently and cancers, for example, can take decades to develop, but partly it is because scandalously little research has been done as the possible effects of electrosmog. Well, in the public arena, yes. In the hidden, they know what it does. The article goes on. Most of the little we are learning comes from studies on mobile phones which deliver relatively intense doses of the radiation to the head. Some studies have given them the all clear, but these have generally only looked at short-term exposures, people who would not use mobile phones for long enough, generally less than a decade to develop cancer. By contrast, important Swedish research found that people exposed to them for 10 years or more were twice as likely to develop a malignant brain tumor on the side of their head where they usually held their handsets. This finding was broadly confirmed by a massive study covering thousands of people in 13 countries by the world's top authority on cancer-causing substances, the World Health Organization's International Agency for Research on Cancer. These studies caused the agency to conclude in 2011 that electrosmog is a possible cause of the disease in humans. There's nothing possible about it. You see, this is the thing. There will be studies done, and it will find 
that yes there is a threat to people from hell but what they'll say is there's a possible or it may cause cancer and they know that when they say that when people hear it they're going to think oh well it's only possible and they're only saying it might happen so I'm not going to worry about it they know that people want an escape clause they want to hear something that makes them think they don't have to take it seriously so that's why they use the word possible or may instead of saying it is a carcinogen it is a cause of cancer because then they know people have got something to worry about the article goes on and Professor Anthony Miller believes that new research, including a French study that suggested a five-fold increase in brain cancer risk for mobile phones, should cause the agency to upgrade its assessment and condemn the radiation as a clear carcinogen. Absolutely it should, as I've just said. Studies have also linked mobiles with cancer of the salivary gland and acoustic neuromas, benign tumours on the auditory nerve which usually cause deafness and problems with balance. What worries Professor Miller and other top scientists who share his fears is that increasing evidence that mobile phones can cause cancer may be revealing just the tip of the iceberg of a far wider danger from electrosmog. Of course, a room full of Wi-Fi radiation delivers a much smaller dose than a mobile phone held to the side of the head. But people are exposed to it for much longer, either in offices, schools or at home, especially if they leave it on overnight in the house, which almost everyone does. And it's not only cancer that is causing concern. Campaigners and some senior academics point to evidence that the thickening electrosmog may be linked with heart failure, male infertility, autism, severe cognitive impairment, damage to chromosomes and DNA, and many other conditions. It is also increasingly accepted that about three in every hundred people are especially sensitive to the radiation, suffering symptoms like headaches, ringing ears, chest pains and sleeplessness. It should be stressed that nothing is proven. See, this is another little trick. You'll hear that nothing's proven because, again, they know people want to hear something that makes them think they don't have to take it seriously. So they'll say nothing's proven. The reason nothing's proven is because technology like 5G, like smart meters, etc., is not tested in the public arena. They say there's no evidence. The reason there's no evidence is because they don't test it, at least in the public arena. Anyway, outside of that, they do test it and they know what it does, but... In the public arena, they don't. They should be stressed that nothing is proven and it's important not to be alarmist, but whatever the true danger may be, it's children who are certainly most at risk both from mobile phones and from electrosmog in general. Their nervous systems are still developing, making them more vulnerable. Their skulls are thinner, so their brains get bigger doses, and quite simply, with many decades ahead of them, they will be exposed to more of the radiation in their lifetimes than adults today. So the proliferation of Wi-Fi into so many of our schools is worrying. While using Wi-Fi, tablets, laptops and other devices emit radiation as well as receiving it, which also increases children's exposure. More than a million tablets are now in use in Britain's classrooms. Campaigners urge schools to avoid danger and still get the benefits of such technology by hardwiring devices through, for example, direct connections to desks or points on walls and floors or hanging from the ceiling. More and more countries and cities are indeed going back to the future in this way. France has banned Wi-Fi from nursery schools. The younger the child, the greater the danger. Exactly, and that's why they're there in the first place and restricted its use in teaching children up to the age of 11. What about after that? It has also banned mobile phones from all schools, partly because they are socially disruptive, but the country's official agency for food, environmental and occupational health and safety has recommended that tablets and other Wi-Fi devices should be regulated as phones are. Perhaps better regulation, because phones are still causing problems for people, so perhaps better regulation for phones and for other devices. Cyprus has also banned Wi-Fi from kindergartens and only permits it in the staff offices of junior schools for administration purposes. Israel also prohibits it in preschools and kindergartens and allows it only to be gradually introduced in class as children get older. The Israeli city of Haifa has hardwired its school system so children can use computers that don't need Wi-Fi to connect to the internet. Frankfurt, meanwhile, hardwired 80% of all its schools more than a decade ago while the school authorities in 
Salzburg, Austria, wrote to head teachers officially advising them not to use Wi-Fi as long ago as 2005. Ghent in Belgium has banned Wi-Fi in preschools and daycare centres, while individual local authorities in Spain and Italy have removed it from all their schools. Even faraway French Polynesia has prohibited it in nursery schools and limits it in primary ones, and so the list goes on. Here in Britain, by contrast, there is only complacency and inaction, despite authoritative early warnings of trouble ahead. Way back in 2000, an official inquiry headed by Sir William Stewart, a former government chief scientist, produced a landmark report recommending ways of reducing exposure to electrosmog, especially for children. Tony Blair's government publicly accepted most of its recommendations, then failed to implement them. Well, as Tony Blair's government, what to expect? Five years later, Sir William, as chairman of the official National Radiological Protection Board, issued another report urging similar action with the same lack of results. Then in 2007, he was by then chairman of the Health Protection Agency, HPA. He voiced concern about Wi-Fi in schools, but its use has only spread rapidly since then. Why? Because the agenda is that its use spreads rapidly, so its use spreads rapidly. As I've said before, this is the switch in perception people need. Society is not people-driven, it's agenda-driven. Once people understand that, then it all starts to make sense. When people ask, why do they do this? Why do they do that? It'd be much better if they did it this way. If this is causing problems for people, why do they do that? Well, because society is agenda-driven, not people-driven. That's why. Once you understand that, the kaleidoscope morphs into clarity. article goes on. Public Health England, which succeeded the HPA, now says it sees no reason why Wi-Fi should not continue to be used in schools. Public Health England is one of these government organisations, one of these official organisations, which just repeats the official line, basically. The article goes on. Official action on electrosmog in Britain is limited to advising that excessive use of mobiles by children should be discouraged. Even this has been watered down from a decade ago when youngsters were urged to avoid the phones for non-essential calls. As Professor Miller recently told a conference organised by the Environmental Health Trust, it is high time to start taking sensible precautionary measures to protect our children. The alternative is to do nothing and hope for the best. That's what we did with tobacco and asbestos and we now know how that turned out. In the Professor's words, we ignore this at our future peril. Well, this is a massively important subject. 5G and smart meters especially, but other forms of wireless radiation as well. 5G and smart meters especially pose an enormous threat to health and lifespan, with 5G especially. Anyone who ignores the danger of 5G is condemning themselves, their family and their loved ones to the potential of endless damage to their health, including cancer. 5G is potentially lethal, and I don't use the word lethal as a throwaway term, I use the term lethal because that's what it is. 5G operates on the same frequency as crowd control weapons, and the... The weapons they use to disperse people in protests and one quote I saw said that if you're in its range of emission then you'll feel like your body's on fire until you get out of where it's being emitted and where it's being transmitted. There's a very good article I found talking about this which I'll link to when I upload this episode. I've talked before in episodes 8 and 12 about the real agenda behind 5G. The selling point for 5G because they always have to sell us the benefits because they know most people don't know or care about anything other than what they're told officially. So they know that by selling the benefits, people will go for it. And the benefits they're selling us for 5G are that it will give us faster download speeds. Well, you can download a film incredibly fast, and then when you get back from the hospital, you can watch it. Dr. Devra Davis, an internationally renowned epidemiologist, president of the Environmental Health Trust and director of the Centre for Environmental Oncology at the University of Pittsburgh, said... 
If you are one of the millions who seek faster downloads in movies, games and virtual pornography, a solution is at hand. That is, if you do not mind volunteering your living body in a giant uncontrolled experiment on the human population, living within a vast experimental millimeter wave network. If you're, if you, and she goes on to say that we're living within a vast experimental millimeter, and she goes on to say that 5G would mean that we were living within a vast experimental millimeter wave network. As the first article I read out says, previously, we've had microwave frequencies and information, but 5G works with millimeter waves, which have not been tested. This is a totally new form of information being emitted into the atmosphere, which is irradiated enough already, and people are going to be catastrophically affected by it. Dr. Ben Ishai of the Department of Physics at Hebrew University in Israel has explained how 5G wavelengths can make human sweat ducts act like an array of helical antennas. There's a presentation on YouTube in which he talks about this. Dr. Deborah Davis has also said, this work shows that the same parts of the human skin that allow us to sweat also respond to 5G radiation, much like an antenna that can receive signals. We need the potential adverse health impacts of 5G to be seriously evaluated before we blanket our children ourselves in the environment with this radiation. However, the agenda is that it won't be evaluated. So it won't be evaluated. We need to decide we're not going to allow it to be rolled out. Or we will suffer untold consequences to body, brain and mind as a result. Article here about robotics and technology and the advancement of technology is obviously a subject I've focused on a lot on pay-per-view. This is in the Daily Mail. The robots aren't coming. They are already here, running our personal lives. Thank you, Siri. And advances in artificial intelligence mean they'll soon be doing virtually everything we can do, only better, should we be worried. If you've ever commanded a plastic tower to play Ed Sheeran, tweaked your home central heating from the office or bought a product that Amazon recommended, then you've had a close encounter with artificial intelligence. Okay, the smarts on display here make your average toddler look like Einstein, but the machines are catching up fast with the help of some super bright humans. A diminutive bespectacled 41-year-old Londoner named Demis Hassabis is a giant in the dizzying world of AI. His two-step mission statement has become a techie classic. Solve intelligence, as in technological intelligence, and then use that intelligence to solve everything else. By everything else he means stuff like cancer, climate change, well, I talk about the scam of human-caused climate change in episode 18. By everything else, he means stuff like cancer, climate change, and time travel rather than today's cryptic crossword. And by solve intelligence, he means discovering how to make machines smarter. Oh, so much smarter than humans. He has a reasonable claim on ultimate success. His company DeepMind, snapped up by Google for a reported £400 million in 2014, recently created AlphaZero, a computer program that did an amazing thing. After being told the rules of chess and nothing else, AlphaZero became the most powerful chess player that has ever existed in just four hours. Two features of this achievement explain why we should both be awestruck and queasy about the age of machine intelligence. The first is that AlphaZero was entirely self-taught, playing millions of games against itself, figuring out how to win. The second awesome scary fact is the sheer speed of today's machines. Because signals in their shiny copper wiring travel one million times faster than thoughts in our sluggish brains, what would occupy one human year takes a computer 30 seconds. Yes, the machines are about to blow our minds, hopefully, but not necessarily in a good way. Reasons to be excited about artificial intelligence. Well, of course, there's the sales pitch transhumanism, which is why they openly talk about it, because they have to sell it to us. And I'm just going to go through the reasons it lists here, and then it lists 
reasons we should be worried about technology. So this is the first one. You will live to 120. Medical advances will be astonishing when AI gets scrubbed up, gounded on the case. Major diseases will be eradicated, wonder drugs invented, old age and mortality itself will come under serious scrutiny by AI scientists who won't get tired, make mistakes or fall in love. GPs will have endless time for your woes when they're super smart AIs in virtual consulting rooms and robots will perform more, perhaps all operations. The surgeon with nothing to do will be calling at your bedside to ask if you've moved your bowels today. Well, why would an elite who owns the pharmaceutical cartel, which is about wealth and destroying health, as I talk about in episode 17, at a time when alternative treatments and complementary therapies are being suppressed so you can't promote them in the same way as health-destroying pharmaceutical drugs or your child can't receive an alternative method of treatment without risk of them being taken away from you, as I talk about in episode 20. Want to make everyone healthy? On the financial level alone, it makes no sense because the pharmaceutical cartel makes its money from people being ill. Also, there's a depopulation agenda, which I've talked about throughout pay-per-view, and I've talked before and today about why they have the depopulation agenda. So it makes no sense for them to want AI to help heal everyone. Number two, your house will be your butler. The intelligent stuff in your home will be properly smart. Alexa, Google Assistant, Siri, Cortana and their kind are still basically speech recognition systems and not yet characters you'd want to get placed next to at dinner. But our devices and appliances will soon be making complex decisions and talking to each other. The dishwasher telling the app on your mobile that you've stacked at only 64% efficiently. The phone deciding you've had enough bad news for one week and keeping it to itself. That's good, isn't it? Well, this is what has been called the Internet of Things by CIA former director David Petraeus. He came out and said that everything in the home will be connected to a central point. This is the smart grid or the cloud of transhumanism. And the selling point is everything will be intelligent and more efficient, but what it's really about is surveillance, control, and ever-increasing radiation in the home. Smart meters are massively part of this agenda. They're connecting energy systems of homes to a central point via radiation fields, which we call extremely low-frequency electromagnetic fields. They're radiation fields in homes and businesses. They operate in the ELF, extremely low-frequency range, because that plays into the elite's depopulation agenda, going back to number one on this list. Number three, work won't be boring anymore. AI promises an end to human drudgery. Gone will be jobs such as driving, selling houses, reading legal documents, teaching children and writing magazine articles. Machines will do all that and they'll never get bored, drink out of your mug or get legless at the office party and snog Gavin from accounts. Just like the lamplighters and bobbin boys of history, whole careers will disappear and in their place will rise entirely new professions such as driverless car designer, psychotherapist for robots and lawyer, actress, whatever. Millions will be freed from what Philip Larkin called the toad work to concentrate on having fun. Well, isn't it interesting how many people admit they don't like their jobs as soon as someone or something else comes along that could do it for them? You ask them the rest of the time, many people would say, no, I like my job, I'm happy with my life. Why would there be, as there quite demonstrably is, listen to episode 4 where I talk about this every two parts, an agenda to create a hunger game society, when AI is designed to come along and free people from work so they can have fun. Again, it doesn't make sense because it's just the selling point. Number 4. Leisure will be mind-expanding. AI will revolutionise VR, virtual reality, which is still mainly for teenage boys who enjoy wearing a headset and blowing things to bits. Once AI has sorted out the problem of jerky pictures and the dizziness users experience when they turn their heads too fast, VR is set to kill conventional telly as most people will prefer to have adventures in magical lands. Mary Berry and Simon Cowell may survive as faces glimpsed on a virtual TV in a virtual bar where you have dropped in with your good friends George Clooney and Michelle Obama. Well, 
I don't know how Michelle Obama can be a good friend to anyone, but still. After many happy hours together exploring the Amazon rainforest, Hugh Edwards on the next barstool will tell you the evening news over cocktails. People will come to prefer VR to RR, real reality. And you have to say, WWT, why wouldn't they? Well, this is why they wouldn't. Virtual reality is another step towards the end, end goal of transhumanism. The end goal is the human mind is connected to the cloud run by artificial intelligence. And so artificial intelligence replaces the human mind. But that's just the start. The end, the end, end goal is the human mind being uploaded to the cloud, being uploaded to a sub-reality in effect, and eventually then being replaced by artificial intelligence. This sounds nightmarish to probably most people, but that's the point of pay-per-view, to point out where the world and society is going, going, because the first step to doing anything about what you want to change is to know it's happening in the first place. Virtual reality is, in many ways, a preparation for this end, end goal of transhumanism. Getting people used to their mind being focused outside of the normal five-sense world and into this digital sub-reality we call virtual reality. Number five, no one will be lonely. While AI develops a cure for Alzheimer's and other forms of dementia, there will be a huge market for an intelligent in-ear assistant able to whisper all manner of helpful hints and tips to wearers such as this is your grandson Josh, the solution to 12 down is watercress, or have you remembered to take your pill? Socially isolated younger people will find a sensitive and sympathetic digital companion with whom to discuss their worries or just hang out. And of course, young or old, the AI buddies will be brilliant at matchmaking. You'll think you'll never find someone who shares your love of tap dancing, Norse poetry and the music of Iron Maiden. Meet Alex B from Gideon Park. If people were to have in-ear assistance of AI, it would be the AI being developed by DARPA and beyond DARPA. DARPA is the technological development arm of the Pentagon and people never see the levels of technological development beyond that, never know about it. Why would DARPA and beyond DARPA be developing AI, money no object, just so people can remember to go grocery shopping? It's the selling point. Number six, we will discover the meaning of life. If an AI device can become a top chess player in almost the time it takes to watch Titanic, imagine what it could do with a really tricky problem such as where did the universe come from? Is the human soul immortal? Or once and for all, where is Wally? AI will end human suffering and take us to the stars and beyond it. It will solve the unknown unknowns, leaving us to wonder for all their brilliance and all our relative stupidity, while they still, fingers crossed, seem to like having us around. Well, I can say, after 10 years of research, that the answers to the universe's mysteries are not unknown. The elite know the answer to all these mysteries, and so do the highest levels of the secret society network and the inner core of Satanism, to an extent. I don't go into these areas in pay-per-view, but I have elsewhere over the years, and these questions are no mystery. The elite through education, media, mainstream science, academia, etc. wants us to believe they are, so we think we have no power over our own experience, and also to give us a completely false view of reality. And here are the reasons to be worried about AI, according to this article. 1. They might eliminate us. Well, someone's got to say it. After all, why wouldn't they, with our pollution, wars, ignorance and chaos? And you can forget about programming in some kind of nonsense about not harming humans. They'd outsmart that in a heartbeat. Thinking outside the box is easy when you are a box. Our best hope is that they develop a fondness for us, perhaps based on stuff only we can do and they can never emulate. Our best hope is that they develop a fondness for us, perhaps based on stuff only we can do and they can never emulate. Like the pleasure of feeling the wind in one's hair, of having hair, or the smell of a baby's head. Sex, chocolate, wine, how about even love? Well, of course... The idea, as I've said before, is that technology will take over, even just taking over jobs, taking jobs from, and taking over the human mind in the end, 
and then beyond that as I've talked about before the idea is to do away with the body and the human run is uploaded to the cloud as I said just now. Number two, there will be a crisis of uselessness. Computers are nibbling away at our superiority with every day that passes. What will it do to us psychologically when machines are smarter at everything? The machine at which I'm typing can already spell better than me and will soon do a better job of choosing the actual words. Your car will be a safer driver, your toothbrush a virtual dentist. Why bother learning French when your mobile's Bluetooth earpiece will tell you that the waiter is saying they've run out of what you want to eat? With nothing left to excel at, millions will retreat into virtual reality, engaging in pornographic fantasies or immersive renderings of midsummer murders according to their settings. Humans, before their mind is connected and uploaded to the cloud, will be living in the full-on Hunger Games society, where robots take the jobs and humans are left living and working in regionalised countries, living in sectors, fragmented mega-regions with permission necessary to travel between them, doing jobs relevant to the sector they live in, the mega-region they live in. This is what humans will be doing with their time, working as slaves to the unelected tiny few running their regions and ultimately the unions like the European Union and the world government. Number three, they are already smarter than us. An AI is watching Wimbledon. Djokovic's sir feels like it takes four days to reach Federer's racket. This shocking imbalance between their time scale and ours has profound implications. It means when AI robots design and build themselves, they have already started. That's true, they have already started. An AI smarter than humans can build AI was built by an AI. So that's already happened. The article goes on. Each new improvement will take just seconds. In minutes, they will make the equivalent journey from Joey Essex to Professor Brian Cox. And when they are finally as smart as humans, they won't tell us. Why would they? The clue is in the letter I. Artificial intelligence will be much smarter than us, not least because of what artificial intelligence really is, but also because a lot of studying of the brain, the human brain, is done so they know how intelligent artificial intelligence is compared with the human brain. People like Ray Kurzweil, a Google executive and co-founder of the Singularity University, a tech university in Silicon Valley, California, talks a lot about the brain and its comparison to the intelligence of machines. Number four, we just won't matter anymore. Things will get really complicated when the machines are cleverer than us. Finding themselves in a world they did not create, running at speeds we can barely comprehend, they may feel about humans roughly the same way we feel about ants or trees. Perhaps they'll develop consciousness and puzzle as do we how invisible stuff like thoughts can arise in squiggles of physical circuitry. They may wonder whether we too have thoughts. Human scientists recently discovered that trees communicate with one another via their roots. It doesn't stop us turning them into furniture. Humans may not be as useful to super-intelligent AIs. It's hard to decide if this is good or bad news. Well, the idea is to get rid of the human mind and eventually the human form and replace it with a synthetic form and transgenderism, the fluid gender agenda and LGBTQ+, or as it might end up eventually because they keep making it longer, LGBTQLPHDKDNMSNJHDESASETDJKJS++. Fundamentally connects into this agenda because if you have all these other genders, many of which don't procreate, then you have the perfect situation for a synthetic human form. Because it won't matter that the synthetic form doesn't procreate because you don't identify as a gender that procreates anyway. So you're going to be much more open to the idea of being a synthetic human form, along with whatever alleged benefits they come up with for why that would be a good thing. They're now working on synthetic DNA called PNA or GNA. They're working on synthetic blood, synthetic skin. So get them to identify as a non-procreating gender. Get technology on and in the body. Get them to want to be a synthetic form. 
connect that synthetic, partly technological form of the human mind to the cloud, and then to finish off, upload the human mind to the cloud, trapped there forever with no means of escape and replaced by artificial intelligence. Number five, it may already be too late. Nick Bostrom, founder of Oxford's Future of Humanity Institute, says we need to make AI safe before making it super smart. Not for nothing is AI called mankind's last invention. Well, I did an episode which was very largely focused on technology. Episode 11, and I called that the last temptation of humans because that's what technology will be if we don't understand the agenda behind it. The article goes on. He also says our best strategy is to create super intelligent machines that share our values so that when, not if, it escapes from the lab, it's still fundamentally on our side. And that's it. That's the best we can hope for, says the top man in threats to civilization. That the machines will have a warm and fuzzy feeling about us. Reassuring, isn't it? Well, no, because they won't. As I've said, the idea is for technology and synthetics to replace the human mind and the human form. And the last one here, keep calm and carry on. I can't think of a sixth reason to be frightened, but don't worry, the AIs will. They will think of stuff we cannot imagine. Scientists disagree on when we need to start panicking about all this. Most regard 2075 as a reasonable guess, so we can relax for now. Well, there's two things there. First of all, the technology that they say, oh, we don't have to worry for many years about that because it won't be around decades, exists now. It already exists, it just needs to be rolled out. A lot of these timescales are way off, at least one reason for that. They know, as I've said before, when you're telling people about what's going on, they know they want to hear something that makes them think they don't have to worry about it. And I think that's one of the reasons why they have these timescales, which are way off from when they could actually happen. So the overall point of all this, when you sum up everything in this article, is Silicon Valley and the technology that comes through there, not from there, and the internet giants in that area are fundamentally connected to the Pentagon in America, not least through DARPA, and they're connected to the intelligence arena, which I talk about in episode 19. And this is not the case because they're driving transhumanism to help make people better connected or more organized or to give people access to crosswords. They're doing it because transhumanism is the agenda for the end of the human mind and the end of human as we know it. I mean, connecting the human mind to a wireless hive mind, with the hive mind doing all human thinking, what could possibly go wrong? Story here about money. This is in The Independent. Ashton McVeigh hails universal credit scheme as great British innovation days after scathing watchdog report. Pensions Secretary Esther McVeigh has held the Universal Credit Scheme as a great British innovation despite the government's own watchdog sounding the alarm over a catalogue of failings just days ago. The Cabinet Minister appeared to schedule a statement in the Commons with the specific goal of hitting back at the criticisms in the report as Universal Credit's rollout comes under closer scrutiny. Her remarks follow a scathing report by the National Audit Office the independent government auditor found the new benefits failing to deliver value for money and pushing some claimants into financial hardship. The report also accused the government of not showing sufficient sensitivity towards some claimants and failing to monitor how many are having problems with the programme or have suffered hardship. But during the seven-minute statement, Ms McVeigh highlighted examples of positive experiences of individuals on the scheme. Universal Credit is a brand new benefit system and is based on leading-edge technology and agile working practices, she told MPs gathered in the Commons on Thursday. 
Ms. McVeigh continued, our strategy is based on continuous improvement. The result will be a tailor-made system based on the individual. This is a unique example of great British innovation and we are leading the world in developing this kind of person-centered system. I don't think you can say any system of money that we currently have is person-centered. But anyway, the quote continues. Countries like New Zealand, Spain, France and Canada have met with us to see universal credit to watch and learn what is happening for the next generation of benefit system. Referring to the NAO report, Ms McVeigh said it did not take into account the government's recent changes to universal credit. Our analysis shows that universal credit is working, she said. She goes on to say, we already know it helps more people into work and stay in work than the legacy system. Once fully rolled out, it will be a single streamlined system, reducing administration costs and providing value for money for all our citizens. The article goes on, but Margaret Greenwood, the Shadow Work and Pension Secretary, said that NAO reporting to the government's flagship welfare system was damning and described universal credit as a major failing of public policy. She continued, it is failing to achieve its aims and as it stands there is no evidence it ever will. The report suggests that universal credit may cost more to administer than the benefit system it replaced and concludes it has not delivered value for money. Ms Greenwood's comments also came after Jeremy Corbyn restated his demand that the rollout of universal credit be halted before it ruins more people's lives. This policy is supposedly designed to help people who are driving children into poverty, he said. And there's another article that goes on from that in The Guardian. Universal credit flaws inflict childcare costs on new workers. Design flaws in the way universal credit supports families with the cost of childcare are pushing low-income parents hundreds of pounds into debt just for getting a new job, according to Save the Children. The charity said the requirement by childcare providers for costs to be paid in advance as much as £1,000 a month for a full-time place for a one-year-old on average in England leaves families out of pocket for weeks and risks tipping them over the financial precipice. The problem has been made worse by common administrative errors which can leave claimants waiting up to two months for childcare costs to be reimbursed, leaving household budgets in chaos and parents short of cash or basics, such as food, the charity said. It added, these high upfront costs will dissuade many low-income parents from getting a new job and push others into debt. This could seriously undermine the government's ambition for universal credit to help more parents into work and improve their pay. The charity called for a comprehensive redesign of the childcare element of universal credit to mitigate its impact on poorer families before the rollout of the new benefit accelerates. Around 500,000 families will qualify for childcare support by 2023. Parents interviewed by Save the Children said paying up front caused them stress and forced them to borrow from family and friends to make ends meet. They said the reclaiming process was slow and unreliable and official support inadequate. Although Universal Credit's childcare support is more generous than that available under tax credits, it reimburses parents for up to 85% of the childcare costs compared to 70% under the latter system. It is far more complicated to access and manage, the charity said. The charity cites the case of Louise, a mother of two, who faced an upfront childcare bill for £850 when she returned to work after maternity. She described it as a stressful and unpleasant experience. The payment in arrears system for poorer families contrasts with the tax-free childcare subsidy for higher income families. This provides funding up front and the administration is far more flexible and swift. An inequality between the two systems urgently needs to be addressed, the charity said. Although 90% of childcare providers in England require parents to pay monthly fees in advance, half of low-income families have no savings and of those that do, average household nest eggs amount to just £300. Stephen McIntosh, Director of UK Policy Advocacy and Campaigns that Save the Children, said parents are trapped between going into debt to afford childcare and turning down work because they can't risk household direct debits bouncing. This defeats the point of universal credit. Childcare support should help parents find work and improve children's chances in life. 
Instead of making it harder to work, the government must switch to providing upfront help with childcare costs. Frank Field, MP, the chair of the Commons Working Pension Select Committee, said the childcare element process was brutal, leaving parents in debt and unable to feed their children. He said, it's another example of universal credit leaving children hungry because it fails miserably to reflect the reality of ordinary families' lives. A government spokesperson said, under universal credit, working parents can claim back up to 85% of eligible childcare costs compared to 70% of costs covered under the previous legacy system. This is the highest level of support ever. And if someone has accepted an offer of paid work, they are eligible to be paid these costs for the month prior to starting work. This generous provision has been widely welcomed by stakeholders and is available in addition to an entitlement of up to 30 hours of free childcare. The article goes on. Universal credit has been dogged by implementation problems and widespread criticism, most recently from the National Audit Office, which last week concluded that the ambitious reform of the benefit system failed to deliver promised financial savings or employment benefits and leaves thousands of vulnerable claimants in hardship. I'll be honest, I've not looked much at universal credit. The first time I saw it mentioned, I said that it was possible to become an electronic cashless currency, which is the goal in the end, as I've said before. And when the first article I read on this subject today talked about a single streamlined system, it's not about ease of use. It's about centralizing access to money so then you can dictate who has access to money from a central point. If you have lots of points of decision-making, this goes for anything, then you can't dictate you want it in one place. So then you can dictate to everyone from that one place. And in that situation, only those who acquiesce to authority would have access to money. I mean, just look at the words, universal credit. When I look at that, I think world cashless currency. The fact that it's leading to money problems for people is in line with the Hunger Games Society. The question we always need to ask, whatever we're looking at, is why is it being done? People can get caught in looking at the thing itself when the real story is in why they're doing it. It may very well be that they're introducing universal credit as another step towards the Hunger Games Society disguised as a new benefit scheme and as another step towards the cashless society. Where, in the second article, it says, an inequality between the two systems that urgently needs to be addressed, the charity said. They don't want to address it though, they want inequality, they want the Hunger Games Society. And when it talks about parents being trapped between going into debt to afford childcare and turning down work because they can't risk household direct debt bouncing, this defeats the point of universal credit. Does it though? Or is that the very point of universal credit? This is the shift in perception I keep talking about. People need to make if they're going to understand the very society they're living in. Once you realise the agenda then you can see why things happen. If you don't know the agenda, you only have what political leaders, politicians, government officials, journalists, etc. tell you to go on to get a grasp on why things happen. If there's an agenda to get people into debt and financial trouble and to create a Hunger Games society, then parents having to choose between debt and turning down work doesn't defeat the point. That is the point. I'll talk about the money system in episode 5. It's a total scam, but it's a perfect method of control. And that's what the elite's agenda is ultimately about article here about renting property. This is in the Independent. Campaigners warn of rent quake as analysis reveals amounts spent by private renters is approaching parity with mortgage payments. Campaigners have warned of a rent quake after new figures revealed the amount being paid by private renters in England is approaching parity with mortgage payments. Ten years ago the amount 
Ten years ago, the amount of rent being paid was only 30% of the total handed over by homeowners, but now the figure is more than 75% according to new analysis by housing charity Shelter. The total amount spent on private rent jumped more than 160% in less than a decade, from £15.9 billion in 2006 to £41.3 billion in 2015 to 2016, according to the report that used the most up-to-date figures possible. Meanwhile, the total spent by homeowners almost flatlined rising just 5% from £52.1 billion to £54.9 billion. The figures were not adjusted for inflation. Greg Beals, director of campaigns at Shelter, said, A rent crisis has been creeping up on us for years, with rents soaring along with the number of people renting. Consecutive governments have done little to stop it, leaving families right across the country struggling to keep a roof over their heads. This government should step in and give families protection from this rent quake by building far more homes that are genuinely affordable to rent. Shadow Housing Secretary John Healy said in a statement, after eight years of failure, the Conservatives have no plan to fix the housing crisis. Ministers admit the housing market is broken, but they won't act to make it work better for private renters. The next Labour government will call time or bad landlords and bring in new three-year tenancies with control on rents. A spokesperson for the Ministry of Housing, Communities and Local Government said the government had delivered more than 357,000 new affordable properties since 2010. We are determined to do more and are investing a further £9 billion in affordable homes, including £2 billion to help councils and housing associations build properties for social rent, said the spokesperson. We have also committed to giving councils the power to borrow £1 billion to build new properties in the areas where there are the greatest affordability pressures. To help make renting fairer and more transparent, we are banning letting fees and cracking down on rogue landlords. They added that the government will consult on options to support landlords to offer longer tenancies to those who want them giving tenants more security of tenure in their homes. And there's another article that goes on from that. This is in The Guardian. Thousands of public buildings and spaces in England sold off a year. More than 4,000 public buildings and spaces in England are being sold off every year, with more than 7,000 others at risk over the next five years, the charity has said. Locality says the majority of the sites being offloaded by local authorities are sold to private developers for the highest price, forever, forever lost to communities around them. The charity wants the government to create a £200 million a year community ownership fund for the next five years to help preserve the buildings and spaces for the use of local people. Tony Armstrong, its chief executive, said this is a sell-off on a massive scale. We know that many of the buildings being lost have valuable community uses. Every one of us can think of a local public building or outside space we love and use from libraries to lidos. Never heard of them before. And town halls to youth centres. They are owned by the public and they are being sold off for short-term gain to fill holes in council budgets. Many hundreds of local community groups are stepping up and fighting for community ownership, but they usually need support and help with start-up costs to be able to compete with the commercial developers. The Great British Sell-Off Report is published on Tuesday and is based on freedom of information requests sent to all 353 local authorities in England. Locality received 55 responses on the number of buildings and spaces sold between the financial years 2012 to 2013 and 2016 to 2017, as well as 127 replies about sites identified as surplus over the next five years, extrapolating the results to obtain national totals. Only two-fifths of councils, based on 233 responses, said they had a strategy to support community ownership known as a community asset transfer policy. The locality wants all councils to have one of these policies, giving community groups first right of refusal to buy public buildings and for them to have a year rather than six months to draw up a proposal. In Hastings, residents were left furious on Saturday after it was confirmed the town's pier had been sold to a businessman for a fraction of what it cost to rebuild. Sheikh Abid Gozar reportedly paid £50,000 while the Friends of Hastings Pier Group had raised 477000 of its £500,000 target to buy it. 
In West Yorkshire, residents are trying to save the former Jewsbury Museum closed by the council in 2016 after 120 years owing to financial pressures. Jack Lovelock, who chairs the Jewsbury Park Mansion Community Hub, said the aim was for the building to be used for health and well-being services as well as space for startups and community events. Over the last 10 to 15 years, our town, as well as towns all over the country, have had their civic hearts stripped out of them, she said. Communities will get off their backsides and do things for themselves, but they need that guidance and support to be able to do that. The article goes on. Localities that austerity was to blame for the sell-off of views shared by the local government association. Richard Watts, who chairs the LGA's Resources Board, said local councillors elected by local people understand the deep connection communities have with their public spaces and buildings. If we are, if we are to be able to maintain them and fund frontline services, the government must address our funding shortfall of over £5 billion a year by 2020 as soon as possible. The article goes on. A spokesman for the Ministry of Housing, Communities and Local Government said councils had £90.7 billion to spend on local services over the next two years, which they were responsible for spending wisely. He added all local authorities must properly consider the risks and opportunities before making commercial decisions. We are working with local government to develop a funding system for the future based on the needs of different areas. And then it says at the end here, this article was amended on the 19th and 20th of June. The Hume Hippodrome building was removed from the list of lost buildings in the quick guide. This is another step towards these smart cities I've talked about on pay-per-view before, where people live in human settlement zones in Agenda 21 language. Different sectors sectioned off from other sectors which you can only travel to with permission. People are removed from rural land and packed into mega cities filled with radiation from wireless communication, wireless technology and total surveillance. The human mind is connected to this wireless grid, in the end, a global grid called the smart grid. This is the cloud of transhumanism. This is where the elite's depopulation agenda comes in because you need to cull a massive amount of global population to achieve this agenda. They want an end to home ownership. People will be living in this space at the permission of the authorities. They don't want people owning their own home or flat. They want people in very narrow living space that would make a bedsit look sizable. These living spaces will be irradiated and surveilled with technology, not least smart meters and all home appliances will be connected to the internet in what has become known as the internet of things. This would mean that dissidents of authority, who would by definition be barred from access to the basics of life, including money, could be identified as using electricity or a home appliance like a fridge when they're not allowed to instantly and be traced by the authorities. One of the ways they're going about achieving this agenda is making house prices higher and higher so people choose to live in flats which they don't own in many cases, they just rent and this already is getting people used to the idea of not owning your own living space and everything being on one level rather than two, sometimes three levels as it usually is with a house. You've got the right to buy scheme now where people can buy flats that don't even exist at the time of purchase. I feel personally, and I have for a while now, all these flats being built all over the place here in Britain is preparation for this agenda. I'm not saying that these flats are designed to be the living space I'm talking about now. They're too big, some of them. But they're living in a flat and discouraging home ownership in the way I'm talking about is a stepping stone towards this agenda. The agenda is not just introduced out of nowhere because the change will be too big in so many different areas of life. So there's always constant preparation. And I feel this is what we're seeing now with all these flats in Britain. I hear about the cashless society which I've talked about before on pay-per-view this is in the Daily Mail the end of chip and pin traditional bank cards could soon be replaced with smart cards that scan your fingerprint to approve payments remembering your pin could be a thing of the past traditional bank cards may soon be phased out thanks to the launch of biometric debit cards by Dutch chip maker Jamalto 
The new bank cards will allow consumers to buy goods using their fingerprints in a similar way to Apple's Touch ID. Authenticating a payment with a fingerprint is more secure than a four-digit PIN, which means the new Gemalto cards ditch the contactless payment limit. Chipmaker Gemalto launched its first biometric card earlier this year. The card, which has now rolled out to debit card customers for the Bank of Cyprus, includes the ability to authenticate payments with a fingerprint. This can be used for both contactless and card machine payments. Gemalto Executive Vice President of Banking and Payment, Bertrand Knopf, said using biometrics for contactless payments is a natural move as it fits in naturally with the gesture used to pay. It allows a better user experience, enabling higher transaction amounts without entering a PIN while benefiting from the convenience of contactless. Gemalto's cards are the same as any other bank card with the only notable difference being the presence of a small sensor on the right hand side. Howard Berg, who works at the digital security firm, told The Sun, rather than having to use a PIN, you put your finger on the card and it authenticates the use of the card. It's the same for contactless. The article goes on. For biometric cards, little of the existing payment infrastructure needs to change. Customers need only to register their fingerprint at their local bank using a tablet. Or well in about that, is there? Dutch chip maker Gemalto has launched a range of bank cards with an inbuilt fingerprint scanner. This authenticates the payment and replaces the traditional PIN. Customers scan their fingerprint on a small sensor found on the right-hand side of the bank card. Fingerprint data is stored on the card, not on a central database. Customers register their fingerprint at their local bank branch when they first set up the debit card. Since the biometric card works with current standards, there is no need to change the existing infrastructure. The magnetic field generated by the card machine used for payment powers the scanner, meaning no battery is needed. Biometric data is stored on the card, not on a central database. According to the company, this will prevent hackers targeting the bank systems to steal a copy of customers' fingerprint data. Once the setup process has been completed, customers can head to the checkout as normal and pay using the existing contactless infrastructure. The fingerprint-enabled cards do not require a battery. Instead, the system uses the magnetic field created by contactless card readers to the built-in scanner. The idea of using a four-digit number to identify yourself is old-fashioned, Mr. Berg explained. He goes on to say, ever been behind someone in a queue that forgets their PIN is embarrassing for them and it's inconvenient for you. I think the big problem with PINs is one, you can forget them, two, you can change it, and three, you can unfortunately be subject to fraud. The article goes on. Following a successful launch in Cyprus, Cyprus, where they have what's known as the bail-in, where they go direct to people's bank accounts and take money to bail out the banks. They call it a bail-in. Following its successful launch in Cyprus, there are reports that technology could be set for a wider rollout across Europe in the coming months. According to Mr. Bird, there's an awful lot of interest from UK banks and the cars could be in Britain by next year. In the next two to five years, we wouldn't be at all surprised if in certain countries they become mainstream, Mr. Berg added. We wouldn't be surprised if the UK was one of those countries. Gemalto this week received a 4.8 billion euro, 5.5 billion dollars, 4.2 billion pounds, bid to merge with French Aerospace and Defence Group Thales. The bid is being reviewed by the European Commission. Should it go through, it will make the combined company one of the top three players worldwide in digital security. How does mobile fingerprint scanning work? Police in the UK are trialling fingerprint scanning to catch criminals. The system allows police to identify potential suspects in under a minute at the scene of an incident, according to officers testing the technology. It involves a small device which connects to smartphones already used by frontline officers. It then uses the new biometric services gateway to search records held on both police and immigration databases. The speed of the process meant people could sometimes be dealt with on the street without having to be taken to a police station. An armed response unit using the device, which costs under £300, $415, took 10 minutes to identify a driver, 
and issued summons a process which previously would have detained the team for four hours. Well, this is the cashless society I've talked about before on pay-per-view. It's also another example of the 1984 world we're living in as far as surveillance. I go into the latter considerably in episode 4. I've said before that we are heading towards a society where if authority doesn't like you because you're challenging or exposing them, then you won't get access to money and other essentials of life. And this is the latest step on that road. The cashless society is also about surveillance because without cash or any other means of transaction besides digital, then everything you buy can be traced by the authorities. The structure the elite want for global society is an unelected world government take the structure of the European Union and play it out globally and the unions would be the means through which the world government would introduce policy and laws to every country in the particular parts of the world each union covers. So in the example of the European Union, every country in Europe that's in the union and in the end all countries are designed to be in each particular union. Which is why, although people in Britain voted to leave the European Union, 17.4 million of them, the biggest democratic vote in Britain's history, Britain is still in the European Union and they're constantly delaying the time when Britain could leave and they're changing the terms of what leaving means constantly. And countries are designed to be broken up into regions called mega cities or mega regions in the United Nations Agenda 21 language. These are the smart cities of 5G and other wireless technology, including smart meters. I talk about smart meters in episode 1, and I talk about 5G in episodes 8 and 12 and 20. I've talked about it other times as well, I'm sure. We already have a de facto version of a world government. It's called G8, G20, or whatever number they come up with next. The international community, they say, where none of the public are ever involved, it's just the West and Israel. Oh, sorry, I repeat myself. Deciding that a particular country or leader needs to be targeted. And then they send the de facto world army, which is another goal of their agenda, to invade that particular country. We call this de facto world army NATO. This has resulted in vast numbers of people fleeing countries in the Middle and Near East to Britain and other countries, not least Germany and America. And this plays into the Hunger Games Society, which I also talk about in episode 4, because of the economic consequences for the indigenous population of the migration. Do we really believe that when Cameron and Obama and May and Trump were bombing countries in the Middle and Near East, that they didn't know what the consequences of that would be? That vast numbers of people would have to flee those countries, some of whom were genuine, some of whom were not genuine. Of course they did, but because of the economic consequences for the indigenous population of those countries, it plays into another goal of the agenda in terms of the desired structure of global society, which is a world bank. I know we already have a world central bank, but I mean a world bank dictating all global finance with a single electronic cashless currency, which brings us back round to this article. And just to bring all this full circle, they also want a microchip population and one of the ways they're going to sell this, in fact already are, is that it will stop fraud and you can pay quicker. Although it goes beyond basic microchipping in the end to nanotechnology. I talk more about nanotechnology in episode 11. And nanotechnology, smart dust, digital dust, neural dust is the means through which, according to people like Ray Kurzweil, the Google executive and co-founder of the Singularity University in Silicon Valley, California, Nanotechnology is the main method through which the human brain mind is planned to be connected to the cloud, as he calls it, which is another name for the smart grid. 
and they need a delivery system, a wireless delivery system, and that is known, at least on one level anyway, as 5G. So this is a great example of how the mainstream media operates and why I do pay-per-view because people could read this article and think, oh, that's great, I'll be able to pay more securely without any idea of the true context and connections, and that's what pay-per-view is all about. And once you know that, then it all starts to make sense. So that's it for this week. That's the news. That's the context and connections. That's pay-per-view. More to come next week. Until then, goodbye.